Okay, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, going to the very beginning. We're taking a break from Ephesians because we've been talking about work a little bit. Last week we did a sermon on work, and this will be another sermon on work called A Theology of Work. We're just going to dive a little deeper, and it'll be a little broader as well. It won't be so specific to the text from Ephesians 6 last week. Um, This topic of work, how do I connect my faith to my work is a big one. So I'm going to recommend some books to you because there's so much more to know than I could do in a sermon. So I'm going to recommend four books to you right now, okay, that you can get on Amazon or wherever you buy Christian books. The first one is by Timothy Keller called Every Good Endeavor. Super accessible book, easy to read, very thorough about how we should think about work as Christians and how we can connect our faith and our obedience to Christ to our work lives, how they intersect and how that's meaningful. So uh, anything by Tim Keller is brilliant and easy to read and wonderful. Not so easy to read and maybe even more brilliant is Miroslav Volf, uh, one of my favorite theologians. And this book is called Work in the Spirit, Toward a Theology of Work. So this would be for those of you who are uh, a little bit perhaps educated on work as a theology and like theology and want to dig in a little deeper and really get down to some of the nitty gritty and some of the possibilities. He really rescues with some of the theological issues facing a Christian perspective of work. In juxtaposition to that, a very simple tiny little book that can be read in like half an hour, but is so rich and excellent by my favorite theologian, Wayne Grudem, is Business for the Glory of God. This addresses those things like employment and profit and ownership and productivity and uh, goods and services. How are we to think about them in light of theology? Are they just, are, are they evil things? gain, ownership, profit, employment, or are they morally neutral and they just have potential for evil? Or are they actually very good in God's economy and need to be redeemed in the way that we live? So I kind of gave away the book, but you should read this one. It's great. It's easy to read. It's been a blessing to me. And then the newest one that I have on work is called Why Business Matters to God by Jeff Van Duzer. This one's a doozy. It's great. Did you catch that? Doozer, doozy. <laughs> Jeez. This is a great book. Uh, I just picked this up last week and have been reading it, and it's, it's really, really helpful for, again, a general theology, very accessible. Uh, he writes from a Christian perspective, but he um, works a lot in the secular world, teaches at a secular university, has a lot to say that really connects with those of us that are in the work world. So there you go, some recommendations. Please get them. A theology of work. We're in Genesis chapter 1. We'll get to the text in a minute. Let me just pray for this teaching. Lord, we just thank you that you love us and that you don't love us from afar, but you're very near. You don't love us with a distant love, but you're very concerned about our lives. You care deeply about how we live and how we spend our time and what we do. In fact, you made us to do what we do. You've made us with certain proclivities and certain bents and interests and gifts and talents. We thank you for that. All of that is an expression of your love. We pray this morning that your love, Father, would not be lost on us. And we also ask that the glory of the cross, how it redeems us 
and our work, our entire lives, and indeed, ultimately, the whole world wouldn't be lost on us. But we would rejoice in that, work in that, and work toward that. So, Holy Spirit, please, this morning, give us understanding about work where we spend most of our times and enable us, God, by your Spirit, to be faithful there for your glory. Please anoint me to teach and preach. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we talked about last week in part one, the fact that we're going to spend 70% of our waking hours at work. Most of us, 70% of our waking hours. So at some point, if you're serious about following Jesus, you begin to realize that the gospel affects every area of your life. That if you're really going after Christ, if you're really giving yourself to the truth of the gospel, there's not an area of your life that can remain untouched. You start to realize that all of your relationships are touched by the gospel, that it touches on your finances, it touches on your sexuality, it touches on stewardship, it touches on recreation, it touches on all these areas of our life. And, and we start to realize very soon that the gospel has much to say about our work. Of course it does. 70% of our waking hours spent there, surely God has something to say and the gospel has something to do with our work. So we start to ask because we don't always know how to connect the gospel or our faith with our work. And so we start to ask, in light of who God is, in light of the economy of God and the kingdom of God, does my work even matter? It's easy for us to begin to think, well, my job is not that important. I'm just doing this, that, or the other. And does it really matter? And if it does, how do I sort of integrate my faith into my work? The other question that we start to think or ask is, does my work only matter instrumentally? Here's what I mean by that. Does my work only matter to God insofar as it can be an instrument of his purposes? And this is what most Christians think, okay? So they would think, I'm going to go into business or I'm going to go into this vocation or into these arts or into this thing so that I can make a lot of money and then be generous for the kingdom of God. So that would be an instrumental use for our work for God's kingdom. Or I'm going to go into this particular vocation and try to work justice in the world. So so my job or my vocation, my gifts, my talents will become an instrument for God's justice. Or we think I I, I work in this workplace. I'm sure that what I do making this little widget can't have much to do with the economy of God. But if I evangelize my coworkers, then I'm doing something for the Lord. That would be our, our workplace, again, being an instrument for God. Or if I'm a positive influence in the business world, em- employing and, and bringing in biblical principles. So we often think that that's it. My work, it, it can't be due, too connected to God's glory and God's kingdom, but it can have an instrumental value in God's kingdom. And that's true, but that's not the whole truth. It is true that one of the ways that we can glorify and serve God in the workplace is to evangelize, to practice good uh, biblical principles, to be generous, so on and so forth, work justice. But you see, that lends itself to something that is so destructive in our lives and in our world. And it's this false dualism that we referenced last week. It's akin to ancient Gnosticism, this idea that matter is bad, spiritual things are good. And so that's a false belief. The Bible doesn't support that. And so then what we do when we buy into that is we start to think, okay, my normal life can't be that great. If I want my life to really count for God, I got to do spiritual things. I got to do gospel work. I got to be preaching the gospel or planting churches or serving in the nursery or ushering or giving food to Mexican medical or all these different things. 
Is that true? Is it only spiritual work, so to speak, that matters to God? 70% of our time then would be of not much consequence. Now, last week we said that's not true because Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9 showed us the way that we ought to work. Do you remember the outline from last week? We ought to work with... Nobody remembers the outline? This is so encouraging to a preacher. We ought to work with sincerity integrity and enthusiastically. Remember that? Tried to make a nice simple outline so we could remember it. Sincerity, integrity, and enthusiastically. And unto the Lord, realizing that we are ultimately responsible to him, that we will give an account to him. But again, is that the only way that our work matters to God? Is the way that it's done? Sincerity, integrity, enthusiastically, and unto the Lord. Or... Do we see in Scripture something more rich than that? Do we see in Scripture that our work not only has instrumental value to be a tool for God, but our work has perhaps intrinsic value? That the things that we do in and of themselves can bring God pleasure and glory. That our work, for work's sake, might really matter to God. And not only in this lifetime, but is there the possibility that our work might in some mysterious way matter forever? That there might be some eternal significance to what we do now? How does our work matter? Here's how I want us to think about this. I'm going to try to give us another simple outline to remember, okay? I want us to think about this according to what is often called the biblical narrative or the grand story of scripture, which is this. You're familiar with this. It's got these four points. We'll put it on the screen. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, or new creation. This is the grand biblical story. I'm sorry it's small, but we're going to fill it in all the way, okay, from the left to the right. This is the biblical story. This is going to help us understand work. Okay, creation is this. God created all things, and he said repeatedly in Genesis, it was good. Creation was good and very good. God created all things just as he wanted them to be. But then the fall came. God created man and man rebelled. And God cursed the world in response to the sin of man. So that now we live in this cursed world that's affected on every level, every fiber by sin. And so things go wrong all the time in all sorts of horrific ways. Not because of creation, but because of the fall. That's part of the story. First act, creation. Second act, the fall. Everything is now tainted by sin and its effects. And it needs to be redeemed. Third act, redemption. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing toward the coming of Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, who through his cross redeems us from the curse so that we no longer live under the penalty of sin, nor do we live under the power of sin. But we have been freed from sin, the devil, and death by the cross of Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed. Can I get an amen? Amen. But we realize as we read our Bibles carefully that not only have we been redeemed, but in a way, all of creation has been redeemed. Romans chapter 8 says that creation is waiting for the day, longing for its redemption. Because what Jesus Christ did on the cross was remove the curse. 
He became a curse in our place so that all things will be redeemed ultimately. This leads us to the fourth act, consummation or fulfillment or new creation. When Christ comes again and all the work of the cross and the resurrection is realized fully, where we begin to see we are not only saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but then comes a day of consummation where we realize we're saved from the presence of sin. Can I get an amen? Amen. That in new creation, the new heaven and the earth, there will no longer be sin or its effects. Behold, I make all things new, says the Lord in Revelation 21. The tabernacle of God is among men. Christ has come again and he has wiped away every tear. There's no more mourning, crying, no more death, no more pain. Behold, I make all things new. And we dwell for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth, redeemed by the power of the cross, restored by the work of Christ, him ruling and reigning visibly from his throne. That's what we are anticipating and looking forward to. That is the biblical narrative. This is going to help us think about a theology of work. How does each of these affect our work? First of all, in creation, we learn the purpose of work. The purpose of work. I want us to read Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28. We referenced it briefly last week, but we'll look at it a little closer today. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Trinitarian language there. And let them, that is man, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 of Genesis 1. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay. What we begin to see, and we'll look at a few more verses, is that the purpose of work as revealed in the work of creation is that we might image and cooperate with God. Okay, the true purpose of work is imaging and cooperating with God. Work is ordained by God as a way that we reflect his nature, his character, and his glory. God is a God who works. And when he made us in his image, among a multitude of other things, we were made to work. And the way that we can bring glory to God in working is we image his attributes of wisdom, knowledge, skill, an appreciation of beauty, creativity, productivity, communication. All these things that go into work are ways that we image of God. We didn't get wisdom and skill and knowledge and beauty and creativity and productivity and communication from ourselves. Those are part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And all of creation is a product of God's wisdom, knowledge, productivity, skill, communication. He spoke it into existence. 
And then he ordained work. It says he made them in his image and told them to rule. We become co-laborers, cooperators with God in our work. Okay? The purpose of work is to image and cooperate with God. I want you to notice that work enters into the story before the fall. Okay, it's not like slavery. Slavery wasn't a product of, of uh, creation. Remember when we talked about slavery? That's a product of the fall. But work, like marriage, enters in before the fall. It's a good thing. When he tells us to rule and subdue, subdue has this idea. To make the resources of the earth useful for our own benefit, for the benefit of humanity to make the resources of the earth youthful. So to, so to subdue is to be able to make plastic and then make stuff out of that, to make rubber and to make stuff out of that, to be able to produce from the earth the things that would make surfboards <laughs> and rocket ships and motorcycles and fishing poles and books and the stuff the Bible is printed on. That's what God is telling us to do. I created all these things, now you subdue it. Again, the idea is to use the resources of the earth for the benefit of humanity. So here's the important point. What we see from just so far, we're going to look at more verses, is that work is fundamentally good. Work is ordained by God. It's intrinsically good. That is to say, work is not just a necessary evil, though I know we often feel that way about our jobs. Work is not just a necessary evil, nor is work morally neutral. Well, we just got to work. That's just the way the world goes, and we'll try not to mess it up too much. No, work is actually good. In it, we image God as creator, and we cooperate with God. Now, I want to drill down on this cooperation idea. Look in chapter 2 now, at just verse 5. This is really interesting. Genesis 2, 5, it says, Now, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. Why? Two reasons. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Okay, that's interesting. God was waiting for certain facets of creation until he had men and women to work. That word cultivate literally in the Hebrew is work. There was no shrubs yet because for one reason God hadn't set rain, but he hadn't done so because he hadn't created his workers. His workers weren't going to be the birds. They weren't going to be the leopards. They weren't going to be the bears. They were going to be men and women. And it says expressly there that creation was not yet full, not yet complete because there wasn't a man and a woman to work it. That verse is anticipating God's desire for us to cooperate with him in this good thing he made called work. And notice it's a partnership. God would bring the rain and we would do the work of cultivating. Only God can bring rain. Only God can ultimately make things grow. But then we come along and make bread, right? There's this cooperation. We see it unfolding now in verse 15, Genesis 2, 15. God makes man, he puts him in the garden. Then it says in Genesis 2, 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden 
to cultivate it and keep it. Literally, to work it and to keep it. Now, it was paradise, but it wasn't complete. God left a role for man. Now, isn't that strange? Because we often think, well, in a paradisical setting, setting, excuse me, we wouldn't be working. That's not what scripture teaches. The garden was paradise, but God expected man to work it and to keep it. It wasn't fulfilled until man began to play his role. God provided all the building blocks and would bring the rain, but he wants people to work it. I want you to notice that what happens here with Adam and Eve is they receive a calling. You know our word vocation comes from the Latin vocare, which is to call. They receive a calling. There's a special way in which God made them to work and keep to cultivate the garden as a calling. So partnership, cooperation. We see a really neat example of this in the Gospels when Jesus is getting ready to feed the multitude and there's a kid and he's got a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. You guys remember the story, right? And the disciples are like, look, how are we gonna feed these thousands of people? Like we just got a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. And you'll remember that Jesus takes it and he blesses it and breaks it and it begins to multiply. But what Jesus did next is incredibly important for our understanding. It connects to Genesis here and to creation. Jesus was the only one who could make the rain, so to speak, multiply, multiply supernaturally those resources. But then he handed it to his disciples who then distributed it to the people. You see, the way that God exercises his dominion and his care and his concern for creation is through his co-workers, you and I. You see, we have a mandate, a calling to participate in God's care for humanity, for creation, by working with him. He gave it to the disciples. They distributed. Same thing as in Genesis 2.5. God would bring the rain, but he was going to have man. He was going to call man to work it and to cultivate it. So, work is ordained by God, and it is fundamentally good. God's intention for work is that we would image him and his creativity, productivity, skill, wisdom, knowledge, communication, and that we would cooperate with him, trusting him to bring the rain, working hard to produce the bread. Work was given before sin. Work was given before anyone had to preach the gospel, before so-called spiritual work. This was, this is spiritual work before God. This was good in the sight of God. Creation, now. When we hear the idea that work is good, it, it, we like the idea, but it's not that easy for us because after all, work is work, And though God has intended it to be good, our experience with work is quite different, right? That's why we call work, work, and we call play, play. Our experience with work can be frustrating. Here is the part of the story known as the fall. And what we see in the fall is the problem of work. The fall reveals to us the problem of work. 
So God put man in the garden, gave him work, said, I want you to image me and to partner with me. In so doing, you will glorify me and we'll have this wonderful relationship together. By the way, I'm putting this one tree in the middle of the garden. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from every other tree in the garden, but don't eat from that one. You know the story. Satan comes along, tempts Eve. Eve tempts her husband and they eat of the fruit. And Genesis chapter 3 verse 17 is where we see the results among other results, but for work. Genesis 3.17. Then God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, which is normally a good thing to do, (laughs) by the way. Okay, don't try to make a doctrine out of that. Normally you should listen to your wife. And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Here's the results. Cursed, is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." That sounds more like most of our experiences of work. (laughs) Thorns and thistles, sweat and toil. Thorns and thistles, sweat and toil. These were not God's intention. These are the products of the fall. These are the product of man's rebellion against God. When we refuse to obey God, A curse entered into the world, and now work is cursed. You say, I get that. My work feels cursed. So that what happened here is Adam and Eve went from cultivating good creation, unfalling creation, to now fighting creation, thorns and thistles. Same method as before, same amount of watering, same amount of pruning, same planting and plowing, but now sometimes thorns and thistles. There would still be crops, but now it would be by the sweat of their brow. It would be toil. It would be frustrating. Work would truly become work. What God was doing in this was allowing humanity to experience a little bit of what he experiences, rebellion from that which should obey. The earth ought to obey man when it works. I ought to just be able to put this seed here or turn that bolt there or tweak this thing here or fasten these together here and it ought to work. God said, I should just make this man from dust and then put him to sleep and remove a rib from his side and fashion woman and they should work, but they rebelled. And now God deals with thorns and thistles and frustration and toil. And in the curse, we get to in our work now experience Thorns and thistles, frustration and toil. Work is truly cursed because of the fall of man. We went from cooperation to rebellion. Now what happens when work is cursed, Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11. is not only now do the materials that we endeavor to work with rebel against us and 
Now death has entered in, so our bodies rebel against us. We can't surf the way that we once used to surf. We can't pull lobster traps like we used to pull lobster traps. We can't lay as much concrete as we used to did. Do our bodies are cursed as well. So not only is the ground cursed, and not only is the worker cursed, but this is where motives begin to go wrong. Just one verse from Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. This is about the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, 4. And they said, come on, guys, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. There it is. The motivation for work became cursed at the fall. Remember, prior to that, it would have been all about the name of God. Adam and Eve would not have been cultivating the garden saying, look how awesome we are. They would have been cultivating the garden saying, look how awesome God is. All of it would have been directed back toward God. But when the fall came, sin entered in and motivations were perverted. So now humanity generally endeavors to work for itself and its own glory. Let us build a city for ourselves and a name for ourselves. So that work begins to move toward self-glorifying ideologies. Greed enter in. Corruption enters in. Dishonesty enters in. And then, of course, if it's self-glorifying, we'll do anything to attain to that. So now what enters into the world of work is the exploitation of others. This is where slavery enters into the picture. This is where corrupt employment enters into this picture. This is why when God gave the law, he would say, don't use dishonest scales and balances. Make sure that the way that you measure out, that you do business, that you give back change, that you exchange goods and services has integrity before God because self-glory became the issue now. So greed, the exploitation of others, and the other thing that's important that's seen here in the Tower of Babel is the idea of independence, Humanity moved from God dependence to independence. I made it myself, said King Nebuchadnezzar as he stood upon the great walls of Babylon. And God said, no, you didn't. And turned him into that like feather cow grass eating thing for a few years if you're familiar with the book of Daniel. So in the fall... The problem of work becomes clear. Toil, frustration, and wrong motives. Not only is humanity broken in the fall, and everything that we touch, and everything that touches us, but our work is broken, and it needs to be fixed. Here comes the third act, the coming of Jesus Christ and redemption. Now we're just talking about work. What does redemption show us about work? What does the cross and the gospel teach us about work? It teaches us about the proper place of work. Part of the way that God is restoring the world is by giving us the proper place of work. And the proper place of work is this. It's not meaningless as we often think it to be, as, as it could feel when we're facing the effects of the curse. But nor is it ultimate as they thought it might be as they were building the Tower of Babel. The gospel teaches us about work, that it's not meaningless, nor is it ultimate. Let me explain that. Again, Jesus Christ on the cross redeemed us 
and in some way all of creation from the curse. We have been bought with a price. Paul said, don't you know that you belong to God? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You live for the glory of God. Your life matters. Jesus bled and rose again for you. Your life matters. You are, if you put your faith in Christ, the beloved of God. You are his blessed sons and daughters with whom he is infinitely and intimately and wonderfully concerned. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knit you together in your mother's womb. That thumbprint that you have that is totally unique, no one else in the world has it, God made it. God knows what your exact thumbprint is. Your iris, your eye, your hair color, your proclivities, your bents, your talents, the way that you sort of natural, all of that is ordained by God. Your life matters to God because you have been redeemed. Listen to me, because your life matters to God. Your work has been redeemed. Your work matters to God. There's no false secular sacred divide in God's mind. It's not as though he says, I will deal with you when you're in church and when you're praying and when you're reading your Bible or sharing the gospel. But the 70% of the time, I don't want to deal with you. Just go to work. That's ridiculous. Because you have been made holy, set apart to God. Your work is holy, set apart to God. Because you matter so much that he would redeem you with the blood of his son. Our work matters. Our work has been redeemed. Now, follow me. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed, right? We have gone from sinners to saints. But now we know that we must engage in the long, hard work of sanctification, growing in holiness. Yes, we have been justified and we have been sanctified, set apart, but we also need to be sanctified, grow in holiness in the same way. Your work has been redeemed, but your work needs to be sanctified. And there's lots of ways in which our work needs to be sanctified. It's all the stuff that we spoke about earlier. It can be instrumental for the sharing of the gospel. It can be instrumental for accomplishing justice in the world. It can be instrumental for generosity going forth. It can be instrumental for good and positive influence. And of course, as we talked about last week, we should redeem our work by working with sincerity and integrity, and enthusiastically, and for and unto the Lord. But I want to say this. Our work needs to be redeemed by the gospel, and that we no longer see it as meaningless, but nor do we see it as ultimate. The gospel rescues our motives that were corrupted at the fall and puts us on a trajectory back toward God's ideal in creation. The gospel rescues our motives. The way that it does that primarily is through our new identity, our new identity, that we are the beloved of God. So what we do matters to him. Therefore, we don't ascribe to the idea of, well, I'm just working for the weekend, right? You know that? Remember that song? We don't ascribe to that idea, right? That's a theology that says, well, work is a necessary evil. What's not evil, though it probably is, is the weekend. 
but I'm just enduring work so that I could get to the weekend, right? That is a tremendously popular theology in our world, right? Working for the weekend, that's a theology. Work is a necessary evil that I have to endure to get to the weekend. Or I work for money, right? And everybody does to a certain degree. Nobody wants to work for free. But here's where work is most perverted is that when we begin to do our work to accomplish a feeling of significance, we totally ascribe to this, subscribe to this, excuse me. That's why when we meet someone, we may say a few little petty things, but very shortly we begin to say, what do you do? Why do we say that? Because we have a theology generally that says what you do is who you are, or at least a large portion thereof. Now, some of us can't wait to answer that question. Oh, I'll tell you what I do. (laughs) Because for us, we ascribe a great amount of significance to the work that we do. Others dread that question. We're quick to change the subject. We, We don't really want to boast about what we do. Why? Because it's also tied to our significance. Significance has to do with identity. We continue to suffer under the weight of the curse and not lay hold of our full redemption when we let work dictate our significance, either an inflated sense or a deflated sense of it. That's when work again becomes feeling or starts to feel like the curse. Who here has seen the movie um, Chariots of Fire? Raise your hand. Chariots of Fire. Okay, 1981 that came out. So there you go. Uh, Chariots of Fire, when I first saw it as a kid in the 80s, I thought it was the worst movie I'd ever seen in my life. Like so incredibly boring. The opening scene is like the cheesiest music you've ever heard. Dun, 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 dun. And totally 80s too, like cheesy drum machine and synthesizer. Dun, 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 dun. And they're running down the beach and it shows the reflection. It's like overcast in England. Like not the way that movies should open to hold our interest, right? We want like things exploding and flying and breaking and falling and rescuing and capturing and beauty and awesome and crazy. Then we're like, I'm in on this movie. But when you're a little kid in the 80s and it's guys running on the beach, I hated that movie. Now that I'm old, er, er, Al, er, now that I'm old, er, I love that movie. That might be next to Rocky 1 through 4. Any Rocky fans in here? So good, huh? Every year I try to have a Rocky marathon where I just watch 1 through 4. Forget about 5, don't even mention 6. Let it end with a Russian. Rocky 1 through 4. Other than Rocky... Chariots of Fire might actually be my favorite movie. Now, here's what's going on in Chariots of Fire. I'm going to actually show you a clip in a moment, which is something I never do, so get excited. Right? I don't know if in 10 years I've ever shown you a movie clip. I'm going to show you two. Chariots of Fire, you've got sort of the protagonist and the antagonist. Okay, the protagonist is a guy named Eric Little. Eric, this is a true story. Chariots of Fire is a true story. 
happens in the uh, late teens and early 20s, leading up to the Olympic Games in Paris in the early 20s. You have Eric Little and you have Harold Abrahams, okay? Eric Little went on to become a missionary in China. He was a child of missionary parents from China. He was a Christian. And he's one of the fastest man, men in the world, right? He, he ran the 200 meters faster than almost anybody in the world. And he was, in the story, achieving a lot of fame for how fast he is. And he's Scottish. He's from Scotland, as was my grandmother. And then you have, at Cambridge in England, this guy, Abraham Harold, sort of the antagonist. And he's also one of the fastest men in the world. He, he's a fast guy. And uh, both of them would go on to win gold medals in the Paris Games in uh, the early 1920s. And Eric Little would go on to be a missionary in China who would die there after the Second World War, having led many to Christ and have a lasting impact there. Harold Abrahams would go on to be sort of the patron saint of English athletics. But they had incredibly different theologies as it pertained to what they do. So the first scene that I'm going to show you is from Harold Abrahams, okay, the antagonist, the other runner. He's got everything you could want in life. Okay? His, his father was a, a, a rich English Jewish financier. He's got tons of money. He's at Cambridge. He's one of the fastest guys in the world. He's at the Olympics right now. Okay? And he's laying on a massage table, getting rubbed down just a little bit before he's going to run the 200 meters, his final event. I, I want you to see if you could pick up on his theology of work. The first line is sort of obscured, but he's talking to a friend, and he's talking about this idea of contentment and how he's never experienced it. Okay, watch this scene. Kind, a content man. That's your secret. Contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. Sam and I, we labored, rowed, and bullied for this. Day in, day out. You've seen us. Chuckled over us, I'll be bound. Out in all weathers. Madmen. And for what? I was beaten out of sight in the 200. Then that paddock tricked me in the semi. Now, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing. But now I'm almost too frightened to win. Okay. Did you catch the line? He said, I'm going to have in this race 10 seconds to justify my existence. And could you feel the weight of the man as he lay on the table? He was so weighed down with a bad theology of work. You could almost see the weight of the curse upon him. And he said, I am terrified to lose. I know that terror, but now I'm afraid even to win. 
I have 10 seconds in the 200-meter race to justify my existence. That's a bad theology of work. It is that which the gospel delivers us from. Redemption of work is that it is no longer ultimate. We don't derive our identity from it. We don't earn merit before God from it. We don't get our significance from it. It is not the sum total of who we are. That weight of it, that toil. And he said, I've been toiling. I was practicing in the rain. We've been doing, my trainer and I, Sam, been doing everything that we can. And now I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's work under the curse. Now, we're back up in the film and we're going to see a good theology of work. In the story, Eric Little is struggling between this call to China, spiritual work, and this call to run, his normal work. Normal work would include athletics, surfing, arts, (laughs) so on and so forth. And he's struggling between these two. And his little sister, Annie, is always in his face. His little sister's real serious about the mission to China. And she is always disturbed that Eric is running in these races and achieving a great amount of fame and is taking a lot of his attention, time and effort. And she's trying to convince him, Eric, this thing that you do running is not important. If you're going to glorify God, you need to pay attention to the call to China, to the real work, the spiritual work. And you see Eric is pulled back and forth in the story between these two things. And this is the pivotal scene in the movie where that tension is finally absolved in a moment of Holy Spirit clarity as he explains it to his little sister. Watch this. I've decided I'm going back to China. The missionary service have accepted me. Oh, oh I'm so pleased. But I've got a lot of running to do first. Jenny. Jenny, you've got to understand. I believe that God made me for a purpose. For China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. You were right. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How's that line? But he also made me fast. And when I run, (laughs) how's that line? When I run, I feel his pleasure. That is work redeemed. When I run, I feel his pleasure. That is work redeemed in the sense that it's not meaningless. It's not ultimate. You're not Harold Abraham's. 
But it's not meaningless. Eric, Eric Little got it right. Running means something to God. God made me that way. God made me to be a good mason. He made me to be a good carpenter. He made me to be a good businessman. He made me to be a good mom. He made me to be a good teacher. He made me to be a good artist. He made me to be a good musician. He made me to be a good runner. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That is a good theology of work. It's not ultimate, but it's not meaningless. It goes back to the garden. It goes back to creation that somehow in his running, he was imaging and cooperating with God. And he didn't have the false divide. Both the spiritual work, so to speak, the ministry and the normal work had great meaning and significance to God. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship created for good works. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What you do is important. You have been redeemed. Your work is redeemed. It needs to be sanctified. Now, final act very quickly, consummation. Consummation gives us the promise of work. It doesn't end at redemption. Our redemption isn't complete until the day that we are with the Lord. And the promise of work is reward and recreation. We talked about reward extensively last week, so I won't belabor it. But someday, brothers and sisters whom I love, we will stand before Christ and give an account for the way that we have worked, the way that we have spent 70% of our waking hours. And as we're learning today, it won't only have to do with instrumental value in work, and it won't only have to do with working with sincerity, integrity, enthusiastically, but it will have to do with the intrinsic value of your work according to who God made you to be. We'll give an account for that. Now, some of you say, well, that's real nice for Eric Little. But in what I do, I do not feel his pleasure. You know who gets that? Back from Ephesians chapter 6, the the slaves to whom Paul was originally speaking. Paul said, "I, I get that. You work with sincerity, integrity, and enthusiastically, you will be rewarded. After all, your boss is not your boss. The Lord Jesus Christ is your boss. Some of you may be trapped in something that you're going to do your whole life and it's just work and feels like a curse. Be faithful. You will be rewarded. Scripture is explicit on that point. You will be rewarded. But then Paul said to the slave in 1 Corinthians 7, but if you can get free, get yourself free. So many young brothers and sisters in here, can I say this? Find something to do with your life where you feel the pleasure of God. Why not? Why not? Find something to do where you feel the pleasure of God. Reward and recreation. We know that Jesus is coming again. When Jesus comes again, he's coming to earth to redeem all things, to make new, to set right what has gone wrong. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of us and all of creation. Notice that when Jesus was resurrected, his work mattered. His work mattered. It was his work on the cross took on its greatest significance 
when he was resurrected. Not only did his work matter, but his work would forever be a part of who he was. For he said to the disciples, see here my hands. See here my side. See here my feet. Jesus was, in the resurrection, inseparable from his work. In some mysterious way that we don't, students of theology, fully understand, when the consummation happens and God makes all things new, that which is part of our work that is good, true, and beautiful will be part of new creation. And maybe a surfboard that you made or a road that you laid. Something will survive of your work. It may be the art that you do. It may be the songs that you write. It may be the children that you raised. Something will survive. There will be a judgment, not according to sins, but for faithful work, where certain things will be like wood, hay, and stubble, and in the fire of judgment, they're just going to disappear. But some things will survive. That is why when Paul talked about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, the last thing he said to the church in Corinth was, be steadfast, therefore, and be immovable, knowing that in the Lord your work is never in vain. But it won't only be that something that you do for work is usable in new creation. It will be you. It will be you. Something of how work comes from you in the way that you are made to be by God will be part of the resurrected you. For Christ still bore the marks of his work. Certainly, Eric Little, when we see him in heaven, there'll still be something of the essence of a runner. Right? When we see, well, I can't think of someone we'll see, but if we were to see someone like Jimi Hendrix, I'm not saying we will, something of that work of his would be part of new creation. It's part of the way that God made us to be. Something of who you are as an image-bearing cooperator with God will be important in new creation. You know what that does for our work? It gives us hope. It gets us through the tough days. It helps us to endure the effects of the curse and to lay hold of our redemption and look forward to the day when God makes all things new and hopefully by his grace says to you, well done, good and faithful. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word and what it teaches us. We just ask for grace to begin to live according to it. You would help us to think truly on these things and you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to act truly according to these things. We look forward to that day when we're home. We realize we're not there yet, but we look forward to it, to the reward and the recreation. Thank you for your kindness to us, that you would, by your grace, teach us how we might begin to feel your pleasure when we run. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.